This episode is sponsored by Little Hunger Protein Bars. They keep the little hunger at bay so you can focus on the great hunger. Little Hunger Protein Bars. Dance, baby. I'm now recording. Sorry, it didn't pop up. No, you're good. I was just, I always get paranoid. I'm like, did I select the right microphone? Um, cool. Well, welcome to our episode on um, Has This Ever Happened to You? The the sketch featuring Steven Yoon and I Think You Should Leave. Famously, an adaptation of a Haruki Murakami <laughs> short story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of which, Florence ate a piece of receipt the other day and I was, <laughs> while I was driving, and it was, I instantly thought of that. Let my uh, wife eat. <laughs> uh, related, while well, Ron and I, as we were just discussing, I was in New Orleans this weekend, and we passed many active ghost tours. And uh, <laughs> my girlfriend had not seen that that sketch, so it ended up with me, I think, describing the whole sketch to her like three times before two days later in our Airbnb, I made her watch it. That's um, so funny. That's maybe my favorite sketch of season two. <laughs> Well, interestingly enough, I've seen like comments on YouTube that that sketch is a metaphor for Tim Robbins experience, Tim Robinson's experience at SNL. That's very funny. Like I am saying seems right. Yeah, you're saying we can it's the late tour and for adults and I'm saying fuck and shit and piss and you were getting mad at me. Can't you see how our wires are just getting crossed? But I think that weirdly segues into the metaphor of of barn burning because this is actually an episode about burning the um how do I say the the director's name? It's a uh, Lee Chong Dong. Lee Chong Dong's adaptation of a Mir- uh, Haruki Murakami short story, Barn Burning, which is I wouldn't say based but inspired by a William Faulkner short story also called bar- Barn Burning. So this is very meta. We're traveling. Down a, yeah, there's. Ogres have layers because Florence is it's been over a month since Halloween and she's still wearing her Princess Fiona dress. Oh, that's very cute. It's the worst because it's like the thing is we go outside. Right. And she wears like these cowboy boots and her and her Princess Fiona dress. And people like literally applaud. They're like, oh, God, that (laughs) girl is so cute. And it's like she's freezing. She's wearing velvet paper. She refuses to wear a coat. Do not not encourage this behavior. God, she was freezing. We did a turkey trot. Well, I didn't, but uh, um, Corey's family are all like freak athletes who don't like spit with distance running and just casually. Corey was, she does this every time. She's like, I am so out of shape. I'm like, not gonna, you always say this that like she always says it to me because I, (laughs) she always says this and then I always say it back. Like, you don't realize that you're like better than 98% of people on the planet at running. And then she like, we go to this turkey trot and she wins for the women. Corey. <laughs> of course, she runs like six minute mile pace. And then, anyway, this I was with <laughs> I I was with Florence and this Florence is shivering in this Princess Fiona dress. And a woman comes out to me and goes, dead serious, genuine. She was like six sixties or something. She probably had children of her own. But she was like, do you think she'd be warmer in her in her coat and hat 
Like I hadn't oh, thought of that. My God. <laughs> like, like she said it like not like in a snooty way, like out of genuine concern. And I'm like, do you really think I didn't think of this? Like did you, I was like, did, oh. you did you then invite this woman to Thanksgiving dinner to I just did. slowly ruin her life? I really wanted to say, why don't you try putting it on? Because if you can't see, I'm actually holding it in my hand. And I've asked her about 30 times since we got out of the car. But anyway, um, but we're talking about burning, not about my personal life and problems with my daughter not wearing a coat, despite moving to a cold climate now. Um, where do you where do we want to start with this? There's, yeah, there's... great question. Um, yeah, because I feel like I maybe I knew at the time that there was a Faulkner story involved. I mean, because Faulkner cited in both. The Murakami short story and the movie. Officially, yeah, it's only based on the Murakami short story from um what's the name of the collection? Oh, the the elephant vanishes. Um which I have great read. I, yeah. All this boy. He's, he's got like, great titles. He really, really does. And you wonder it's like how because the the element of translation, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh well he can speak English. No, totally, but yeah. but I guess I wonder if all the, I don't know if all the titles are direct translations then or like, you know, his. Oh, choice. I see what you're saying. Yeah. It is what comes question. across. But yeah. Liter- I, I know that from literary translation, it's like an art. So I feel like if he's kind of right. doing like, I feel like he probably. Because, right. He does translate yeah. a lot of his own works himself, right? I believe so. Which is, I know he trans- he's translated a lot of Raymond Chandler. So I imagine he would translate his own work. What a cool, weird dude really uh, is i feel like let's start with him because then there's yeah. also a point i feel like i need to make off the top because my friend uh i'll i'll leave i'll leave her name out but uh she loves mirakami or, or the one who told me about mirakami am i getting dinner it, with this person tomorrow night you are yeah okay. you are um it's emily it doesn't matter uh, but <laughs> we like uh yeah she she was uh into mirakami and suggested him to me right before i left la and i read about 80 pages before I had to return the book back to the library in the wind up bird chronicle. Mm. And I instantly was like, this feels very Western. Right. And this is like a known thing. Uh, this isn't an original take. Like a lot of people, like it was just, I, I am pretty referential and I've, you know, read a lot of the influences, his influences. So like, I instantly was like, this feels very Western. And then even the references, the, the character is making. And I, said casually to Emily how um, I felt Mirakami was very Western. And she's like, really? I feel the opposite. I feel like he's very Eastern and like weird and strange. And there's like mysticism to it. And I was like, do you know, this has ever happened to you? Uh, does this ever happen to you uh, with um, you're not expecting someone, you feel like you're saying something that no one would disagree with. And right. then all of a sudden someone is disagreeing very quickly and you're just not ready for it. Yeah. Catch you and totally was, off guard. And I was like, I just kind of was like, I didn't have enough arsenal because I haven't read a ton of him. I didn't have enough to like go against it. But then reading this story again, I felt really, uh, I really liked the short story. It was very good. The suspense was great. It was just dripping from paragraph to paragraph of like, what's going to happen. But he references Jay Gatsby. He, they eat Miles Davis. Yeah. Miles Davis eat roast beef sandwiches. It's like, this is your, this is not, this is influenced by Western culture. And I said, I texted Emily and said all of this, what I just said to you. And she was like, I don't know, like kind of agree to disagree. And then finally doing research, I literally sent her a screenshot again. It's great. It's from Wikipedia, but just <laughs> I sent her this screenshot and I finally have won the, the argument mostly because I'm annoying her. I think, uh, let me see. What did I say? Um, who weird. Okay. There we go. 
Um, since childhood, Murakami, like Kobo Abe, has been heavily influenced by Western culture, particularly Western as well as Russian music and literature. He grew up reading a, a wide range of works by European and American writers such as Franz Kafka, Gustave Lambert, Charles Dickens, Kurt Vonnegut, Dostoevsky, Richard Brotigan, and Jack Kerouac. These Western influences distinguish Murakami from the majority of other Japanese writers. And then she said, she said, she said, ha ha ha. I guess you're right. Not all Japanese writers are also influenced or not all Japanese writers are influenced by the West. So I don't know. Did I win the argument? What do you think? <laughs> According to Wikipedia? Yes. But he's totally white. Like, no, no, no that's like his whole thing. I mean, yeah, I think it's like even like what's crazy is it's even like. He, a lot of his work is almost seemingly about that, you know, mm. like the characters have Western influences, you know, and deal mm. with those things. Like, I know there's this one. He talks about the Beatles a ton. I have not read um, Norwegian Wood, and I don't know if or how it Norwegian relates. Would you? Okay. Um, anyway, continue. <laughs> that was good. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know if that relates to the Beatles song of the same name, but I, I can't be an accident. Of course. And yeah. uh, like I read, uh, gosh. Because I've only read, I've never read a novel. I've read, uh, I read this whole book of short stories before Burning came out specifically because I was like, I want to see this movie. I've never read anything of his. I'm going to feel mm -hmm. stupid. I did that. And then for work, um, we actually worked with a producer who was interested in trying to option um, Men Without Women, um, which I believe I have his most recent collection of short stories, which is also where... Uh, the film Drive My Drive Car, my car. Okay. was adapted from. Um, so I read that for work, loved them. And then I've read a couple other random ones, The New Yorker. One somehow was definitely about the Beatles. Uh, and another was about a monkey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. But yeah, I think they're always, it, it's interesting because I would say I think they are very Western and a, like he clearly has Western influences. And like, again, his characters have them, just like the mm -hmm. characters in both this short story and, and the film. But I do think there's like kind of a, clash there which is what's interesting but that's also probably just because i don't read much japanese literature at all so mm -hmm. there are certain like oddities like like even like i sent you the line about how he sometimes just finds himself having eaten seven apples like <laughs> that seemed to come out of nowhere and you're like this is yeah. so strange and funny but also like played totally straight mm -hmm. um I no, Very I agree that there is a disconnect. It's not like you're reading it and being like, "This was written by a Westerner or something," but it is. It feels no. you can feel just the way he's writing. I don't know. I I felt like just reading more about him. That and this is my take on Mirakami, having only read a, a small amount of things. I've read eighty pages of Wine of Bird Chronicle and like two short stories, so I don't have uh, take my opinion with a grain of salt. Uh, I actually like I liked bur burning was this thing I've liked the most mm. actually barn burning the short story you sent me for this um, and I think he's good writer I think he's like super super smart very observant and just hearing how he writes he feels like he's like tinkering with something mm -hmm. like he's just trying to place the right word and I feel like he gets helped by because I also had this I liked the wind up bird chronicle and that's like considered his masterpiece and again I've like only read 80 pages I felt like he was, it felt like popular fiction to me. Oh, interesting. And there's, and there's nothing wrong, nothing with, wrong that. with that. Right. Well, like people, for example, would like shit on like Michael Crichton or like Stephen King even. And I feel like because he's, uh, you know, kind of this living legend who's, who's from Japan people, he has a cool factor. And oh, he definitely does. Yeah. I mean, he's, he has so many strange things. That I can't believe I haven't read this, but people love his book on running. I know. Oh yeah. Um, I was going to say, I feel like that's right up your alley. It's I know. 
And even that I use against Emily because it's literally what we talk about when we talk about running, which is yeah. a reference to the Raymond Chandler short story. Carver. Book. Yeah, Raymond. Sorry. sorry, not Chandler. Not um, Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> little little uh, callback to our Elmore Callback. Anyway, uh, Raymond Carver short story. That Great then point. Is, is also a weird kind of meta adaptation in Birdman. It's like there's just so many references. Yeah. To- or this is a reference to a Faulkner story, you know? Yeah. Um, um, but that's how I felt a little bit. I felt like it was cool when it was well, it was concise. It was very long, but the sentences were concise and constructed I see, I see. very well. Um, but I didn't ever feel like I was like, oh, that's, you know, like that's, that's the magic of, of, of like a really great writer. I just think he's like very, very good and very competent, prolific, and has probably read everything on the planet. That's the vibe I got. He definitely seems like it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I, I'll have to read the novels. I really want to. Um, Cause I, yeah, I love both books of short stories. Yeah. Rereading this short story after having, cause God, the first time I read it, I remember, I think it might be the final story in the book. And I just remember being a, like rushing to the movie and finishing the short story at the uh, R.I.P. now shuttered Starbucks on the uh, southeast corner of Sunset and Vine before walking over to the Arclight to see it and like going in. I mean, we discussed this, didn't get at all that uh, the barns were maybe a metaphor uh, <laughs> or that yeah. there was any sort of menace to the to the um, mm-hmm. woman's disappearance. And then so when that turn happens in the movie, it like blew my mind because I just read the story 30 <laughs> minutes before, but I'd read it so rushed and I certainly liked yeah. it and I liked the whole book. But then reading it this time, I mean, so short, but I was like, God, this is a great short story. It's really good. It's everything you want out of a short story, I think. Um, yeah, just like I said, the suspense and it just builds. The pacing of it is great. I even liked it, and I read it on an online PDF, and I typically hate anything yeah. that I read on a computer, including the William Faulkner short story. Very hard for me to read. Very difficult. That one was difficult. That PDF um, also kind of sucked. Yeah, it was the margins were really – that's the thing about old. anything old is like – again, it's a PDF, so it doesn't matter. But like when you buy an old book, like sometimes it's like impossible to read because yeah. you're like, yeah. there's – you need – I'm sorry, you need a double space or at least give me 1.5 on, the, on, on these lines, basings. Um, um, I, something great, I great loved – in the short story was uh and this isn't included verbatim in the in the movie the idea is certainly there but it just reminded me of seinfeld is that he the the ben character who i don't think has a name he's just the boyfriend in the short story uh is just vaguely in the import export business which is a lie that george costanza tells several times about what he does throughout seinfeld uh the main thing was art vandalay yes yeah art vandalay uh yeah (laughs) Being an architect and a marine biologist are the big lies and an importer exporter. That is funny. It's the, yeah, it's kind of like the one thing that I felt. And I actually, it doesn't matter. I don't know. It's kind of interesting because I have this theory that I just literally developed 20 minutes ago that I want to tell you. So I kind of so a lot of the protagonists in Mirakami's short stories, or or, or not a lot, I've, again, but I have I, you know I'm aware of plots and different stuff, but a lot of them seem like they're men in their 30s, um, kind of like interacting with women in their 20s, and but I think that that's absolutely the case. I mean, you know, I've read like maybe 15 of them, definitely often the case. Okay, right. Yeah. I kind of think, and I know he started writing in his at 29 i think and he really didn't start writing seriously until like 30 31 i kind of feel like people write 
often about like they they focus their stories on when they began writing yeah do you know what i I mean i think that's fair i mean well i think yeah there's it's interesting because that can last or then there's the on like childhood yeah but i I, I think that's a good point yeah the age around when that starts yeah when you start writing especially Mm -hmm. if your characters are writers i mean like look look at this one you know definitely but (laughs) it is a thought but um I kind of like that element in the short story and I actually think I'm, I don't, it's totally fine that that wasn't there in the movie. Cause the movie is great. Um, Which element? The age gap. Yeah. The age mm. gap. And then he has, he's married the narrator in the yes. movie. Yes. Oh, of course. That's one thing I wrote married. down. That's, I mean, there's tons of infidelity like that in his stories mm. throughout. Um, it's so casual too, which is, yeah. which I think is they, he doesn't even do anything with her in the short story. Right, right, right. Exactly. She falls asleep in his bed, but the dude, the boyfriend is there. And it's kind of like reminds me of I've had female friends who kind of have these older guys in their orbit who when you're a younger guy in your 20s, it's kind of infuriating because you don't have like any money yet. And like there's like some guy who's been in the workforce like 12 years later, like hanging out, like kind of being a steward of one of your female friends or whatever. And it, you feel self-conscious or something, but it was kind of like that. It felt like it was that type of relationship. Like he was getting at, he was getting the narrator liked her because she was young and flirty and she liked, she was kind of using him a little bit, but then their connection was genuine yes. in a weird way. I, I mean, I know exactly. I actually felt this time the, the relation to that real dynamic, real life dynamic you just mentioned more in the movie. Um, Cause in, so, okay. Just to clarify, I did just reread and uh, watch both. But in the book, the third character, the new guy, is her boyfriend, who's a, son, a new boyfriend. But in mm-hmm. the movie, that's never made explicit. However, the main character does sleep with her in the movie. Um, so it's kind of flipped. Like, they, they never yeah. say that Steven Yeun's her boyfriend in the movie, I don't think. I don't think so. No. I mean, it is kind of heavily implied. But that that is the aspect that does feel like just out of life where you like think you're about to be with someone. And then suddenly there's a cooler guy and the three yeah. of you at some point have to hang out and you're left on this like. Wow. Yeah, precipice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is interesting because I also felt like it was. I didn't necessarily get yet because I had that same thought, but like, are they dating? And like, I kind of felt like the scene that I thought was really well I guess we'll move to the movie and then move back to the story if we want but um the scene where she does her little hunger great hunger dance at the mm-hmm. bar mm-hmm. and it's like kind of embarrassed like all the all of his friends are kind are of clearly like, like think she's ridiculous yeah yeah um I kind of felt like it was like he was like doing the manipulative thing that I have done in my life where it's like, you're telling someone this isn't explicit in the movie, but you're telling someone you're just seeing them casually. Right. Right. But then you're doing all this shit with them. So it's right. very confusing where you're like, it's like, you're like, Oh, we're not boyfriend, girlfriend, but like, I'm going to come to your house at, you know, and we're going to have pick well, have a picnic in the park. Like that's a boyfriend thing. Right. You know? Right. Right. I kind of felt like it was that it was in that gray area. Cause I didn't think he, cause he's like very quickly characterized as someone you're not going to like as yeah, someone yeah. who's and someone I felt like he was and even and the narrator even or the main character in the movie even is like why is this guy do you ever ask why this guy's hanging yeah. out <laughs> like, oh my god with that scene has the incredible line when he's talking he's like he's only six years older than us and yet he's rich enough to to like whatever he says have a car have this apartment jet set 
and he's rich enough to make pasta while listening to music <laughs> which i was like that doesn't make any sense but it was also so correct yeah it's like to not to like it's almost like, to be confident you know yeah, exactly exactly yeah. Uh, um, it's great whenever the whenever uh, the protagonist oh gosh what's the protagonist's name whenever that veneer breaks of him kind of being like this super awkward um, insecure guy breaks and he just says the truth I mean because the other times he's truthful he essentially like calls her a whore um, or spoiler alert murders someone uh, well that's uh, that's the one thing I had okay here let's talk about Murakami and then mm-hmm. let's talk about the the because I just want to add, I've just wrote down some quotes. Um, and I'm just curious what you thought of the two things I want to just share very quickly. One of them is funny that this quote just out of context is funny and has nothing to do with burning, but it says, my lifetime dream is to be sitting at the bottom of a well. And he's talking about being writing so he can be isolated. That's Murakami's quote? Yeah. Dude, and this movie like, has some cool, a great example of like adapting someone's work, even in the ways it doesn't. That's yeah, like kind of like how we said Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach went to Gypsy House to mm. write the script mm-hmm. and how that filtered in the fantastic Mr. Fox, kind of the the unconscious landscape. I feel like this movie did really well of that. Um, so that's one thing. And then there was something he wrote that I, I appreciated. It's kind of simple and straightforward, but he's referencing. Um, where is it? Let me find it. Okay, he says, if the very important secret is not solved, the readers will be frustrated. That's not what I want. But a certain kind of secret that stays secret is also very sound curiosity. I think readers need it. And that's what's so interesting about, like, at the end of the spoiler alert, as Tanner alerted earlier, like, the main character kills um, Ben because he suspects that he's killed Hey, uh, hey Me. Is that how you say mm-hmm. your name, Hey Me? I believe so. And- and it's funny because I left being like, okay, he did not have definitive proof at all. Not at like, all. <laughs> like being like, he probably did it, maybe, but like he had literally he, the cat's name is Boyle responds to Boyle and he has the the watch in the drawer. And like I think he murders, sure, but like I wouldn't personally murder someone anyway, but like I definitely wouldn't do it under those <laughs> No, I mean it's cool because it uh because I, I didn't remember it being kind of more set up that he has this kind of repressed rage. Throughout, like his dad. Yeah. Like his dad throughout throughout the movie. Like, you know, like his outbursts and his kind of like, you know, I mean, it's interesting because it also maybe reading too much into it. And maybe Murakami does this in a short story as well, but kind of feels like a commentary on the type of Murakami protagonist we're talking about. You know, where it's like, is there more here where like, yeah, we're all sexually frustrated men at a certain point, but it feels like amped up a little bit in those moments mm-hmm. where it's like, because he's like masturbating and stuff, masturbating, yeah. you know, the kind of sexism of like, you know, this guy's possessing her, but I can't. So I'm like lashing out at her occasionally. Oh, yeah. Um, and That's cul- culminating in him killing this guy but it's also like there's also obviously like the elements of class are so mm-hmm. so much greater in the movie oh i felt upon reading the fog i think that's a really good observation and i agree um i also think at another layer and who knows it'd be interesting to talk to the writer of this but it's like i also felt like the rage stuff you're saying though the repressed rage was referencing the faulkner story because totally, it was totally. Like, the dad in the Faulkner story is like is totally mirroring the dad 
in um in burning totally I thought, as I opposed to the mirakami short story definitely you know? i mean when what an interesting synthesis of those two things because like it, it feels like yeah and it feels like there are even bits in the faulkner story that don't aren't even in the movie that still feel like the backstory like this character makes even more sense if you knew his father like a greater extent of how angry his father was um yeah, because because in the in the film burning, you know, uh, the main character's father is in jail and awaiting trial for like basically fighting with some local authority physically and physically mm-hmm. hurting him regarding like th- their farm. And in the Faulkner story, the father's like repeatedly charged with this and also with burning things down. Mm-hmm. And then it culminates in him, you finding out he's like compulsively like he's compelled to burn things down and he can't help it. And like chases after a barn by their new house to burn it down and is shot and killed. In addition to all of his rage that kind of ruins the family's life. Um, yeah. I was, oh, that was so interesting. It is really interesting. Do you think he was compelled to do it? Cause it's, it's obviously is a compulsion in some way, but I always feel like it's like this type of thing in a way. So if, if you can't, claim insanity basically so if, if i were to kill you tanner and uh-huh. then and then tr- bury your body i can't claim insanity right you know right. what i mean because it's, it's like i knew what i was doing was right. wrong i'm not trying to it's not even premeditated it's i knew i was what i was doing was wrong or that they were or at the very least that there are consequences mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's kind of like yeah if you're but why are you then burning someone you have a grievance with right right right, right. <laughs> like, like it's not like you're that doesn't mean it's not a compulsion but uh no no, no. that's you know a good I mean? point uh, so yeah, it's very, cause yeah, he did no. Oh man, it's great. No evidence he actually did it. Um, yeah, just a just kind of a vague like what's yeah. the John Mulaney bit where he's like, how before DNA it was just a guy with a hunch, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's like, but it's also so. I mean, Stephen Ewan's performance is so incredible in this movie, and it it convinces you where you're like, yeah, this guy is like from another planet and mm-hmm. everyone loves him in a way that makes sense. But this guy feels like he's the only one who sees that this person's clearly like yeah. a sociopath. Uh, well, but- I think, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. And then I'll add a point. No, no. It's just like, yeah, is he, is this guy totally normal and just rich and an asshole or like we see him from, you know, the protagonist's point of view. And it's just, he's totally unearthly. I'm like, I mean, I guess there, he does admit to never crying. Uh, he says that pretty early on. And yeah. the thing, the tell I think, which I think is fucking hilarious and brilliant and subtle is he's talking to someone on the phone and says his friend picks him up, picked him up from the airport. Yeah. He's like, he's not his friend. He's not his friend. He's totally just like making appearances, making him seem like he's cool. But the thing about Steven, the thing about Steven Union is casting. I'm curious what you thought, because here's my my vibe on foreign films. Every time somebody is like, you need to watch this foreign film. It's great. I'm like, I watch it. And I'm like, this is amazing because I don't know a single thing about any actor at mm. all. And in a way, it's hard to evaluate their performance because I, when you don't speak the language, you don't know how they're delivering the dialogue. You kind of just know from the emotional punches, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I thought this, I thought the main character was fucking phenomenal. Like that I thought guy he was is so good. I thought he was that dude. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Even you and I saw, I had to suspend my disbelief that tiny, he's great in it, but just a tiny little bit because I knew who he was and I've seen him in some other things. And like the other people, this could be a documentary for all. And obviously it's not because of cinematography and all that shit. But like, do you know what I mean? 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting you say that because uh, this is totally anecdotal. Um, but uh, a, a woman I know who's um, Korean uh, told me around the time of this movie released that you are in, I, I hope that's the correct pronunciation, who who is the, the lead of this film, is kind of like a tabloid bad boy in South Korea. <laughs> like she she said he was like a Shia LaBeouf type so that this is oh. like, like kind of a willful like a uh, against type kind of casting i don't know how what's his what's his moment shy's moment was he when he did (laughs) yeah because this feels like his performance almost in disturbia oh sure sure that's that's uh, his breakout Uh, role um, oh labeouf god uh, i watched him on a podcast trying to get redemption a little bit was it the john was it the john bernthal one yeah what do you think of that i i only saw quotes of it i don't know i mean it's like i feel for the dude clearly dealing with a lot of shit and alcoholism but when he was like I'm all for making up stories, but when he was like all that honey boy shit about the trauma for my father was like <laughs> totally made up for the press tour. I was like, that's crazy. That's fucking. Insane. I felt like this person is on a road to recovery and is earnest, but still has no idea how toxic they yes, are. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Like, you, like you need like 10 more years of this. Because uh, even in some of the "Don't worry, darling" controversy, like in his emails to Olivia Wilde that were leaked, I was like, he's still pretty nice and like contrite and like totally coming to this with like i'm in the wrong about most of the things i've done and i'm working to heal but you're still like i don't know man like like you I, said yeah you don't realize how toxic you are well that was interesting though because i didn't we shouldn't get <laughs> yeah let's not get the weeds, with the don't yeah. worry darling but i thought olivia wilde was it sounded like she was a little bit this was the one issue i've had with her and all that i don't care anything about it, the other stuff it's more like it did feel like they couldn't schedule it and that was the real reason why he didn't take the role. Yeah, was it's that, like don't lie. If yeah, and I think she if, wanted to if you're like doing this. sending it in a video too. No, and that video made me really uncomfortable. And it was kind mm-hmm. of like I feel in some ways Olivia Wilde is like you know probably the most famous female director right now. Like yeah. you know just because she was an actor for she's good at a director just because but she was a a famous actor. So to step into that role, she has most directors you know don't have the same type of star quality as like a star actor. So like. You know, she's I think they're really trying to position her as like this powerhouse female director who's dealt with all the shit. And it's like, don't I there's pressures that come with that, but the, don't make it seem like you are the one who expelled Shia LaBeouf from society. That's exactly. All I'm yeah, exactly. Don't like hop on a, a ship that's already going down, you know, yeah. like, like, you know, uh, which I think was his point and was the right one. Um I don't yeah, know, that should have been leaked. That all sucked. Anyway, yeah, yeah. But um, back, back, back to this. I thought this film wall was long at times. Like, felt a little long in some of the pacing. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really fucking good. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's funny. I watched it again. I had seen it. My girlfriend hadn't. Uh, we had just gotten back from a day of travel. She fell asleep like right. <laughs> like, at <the> hey turn. me, <laughs> hey. <laughs> she did. She did fall fall asleep like hey me yeah. like literally right before the cat scene i think um and i was kind of like you missed a lot um yeah <laughs> it is <laughs> long. Do you do, you do feel it in a cool way while we're on the casting i want to say i i know what you mean about foreign films and like not knowing anyone and by the way the um the woman who uh who plays hey me he's a Amer- like i think he was raised in detroit and maybe born in korea but has korean parents but you're like he doesn't even have an accent so my American no, brain yeah. is like is kind of confused, but I think it adds to the kind of untouchable uh, metropolitan quality of the character, you know, mm. where he seems like he like he even mentions this the synchronicity part where he's like, I'm in Seoul 
I'm in Africa. You know, he's mm-hmm. even you an American star, but he's here he is speaking to my ear, Korean. Um, but it's also, you know, it's kind of like the same way his character's name is Ben. He's got an Ang- anglicized name, just like he is a, a famous actor. But I, I know what you mean. It's, it kind of, it always kind of cuts both ways where it, it gives people this import, but takes you out of it. Like I know there's a lot of, and I, I don't think you've seen it yet. And I mentioned it, but the, the, the new James Gray film Armageddon time, he's talked a lot about how is Anne Hathaway and Jeremy strong play essentially James Gray's parents in it and how he wanted to cast famous people who seem godlike um, because that's how you view your parents as a child and it mm-hmm. distorts things, which is interesting. But then I've also heard people complain that it takes them out of it, that it's these famous people. But that's also kind of the same effect he's talking about. I don't know. I, I assume mm-hmm. it's like a your mileage may vary thing, but I do think that's always an interesting aspect of casting, how it goes both ways. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a matter of perspective. And I think this, the Stephen Yoon character He's even described in the short story and in the movie as being like Jay Gatsby and Jay Gatsby. Mm-hmm. You don't know where he's from. He speaks kind of weirdly. Um, so I think that's cool. I don't I I think it I think it does work in the film. He gives a very good performance. I just wonder. And again, we've talked about casting a lot in these type of decisions. I think ultimately, does it work or doesn't work? I think it works. Mm-hmm. I wonder if if I was a, an actor, a Korean actor, if I'd be pissed, though. Hey, totally fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Valid. Yeah, it's it's what? Because, yeah, again, as an American, I'm like, it's so cool that he makes foreign yeah. films, too. But it's like he's here's this rich American actor. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't and- know, but he is very good. So I think like he talked about even it's not nepotism, right? But we were talking about nepotism once. And we're like, look, even if, you know, Lena Dunham's casting all her friends, they still got to bring the goods. They're pretty you know? good. It's They're true. pretty fucking good. Uh, can't, well, you can't suck. Just a quick. We don't have to go to because, you know, I'm not. I've only seen one other uh, Lee Chon Dong movie, Secret Sunshine. Also really great. Um, I need to watch more of his films. You know, he's kind of part of this uh, new Korean cinema considered like movement from like the late 90s on, you know, with like Bong Joon-ho, Park Chan-wook, maybe a little more notable. Uh, I love Hong Song-soo, who's like makes these smaller movies. But then there's Kim Ki-duk, a bunch of guys like in all like, you know, the kind of crazy Korean cinema that we Mm -hmm. uh that kind of breaks through a lot of it more violent and like genre associated. But um, he, now it's funny that you mentioned taking away jobs from Korean actors. Apparently there's something that's been part of the South Korean film industry since um, at least the nineties um, called a screen quota, which is basically like it necessitates a minimum amount of domestic films like taking up theaters per year in South Korea in order to prevent too many like Hollywood or European films from dominating it. And he was actually the, I thought this was cool. I'm like, damn, we should do this. He was the minister of culture and travel for South Korea from 2006 to 2007. And he like really like stuck to the screen quota. And because of that, he was given um, the Legion of honor award from the French government. Because mm. he like you know was a champion of the arts in that way, and I thought that was really cool and interesting. I didn't know that was a a thing. It makes sense, you know. I know, yeah. I know other countries have more state funding for film and everything, but I didn't know that they're preventing more American films from coming in was was uh, a thing. That is interesting. That is that is that's probably a good thing. I wonder how we could let's, pre- let's prevent the foreign films from coming in. Yeah, our no, uh, Parasite, go home. <laughs> Parasite is so fucking good. It's really good. Um, but uh, no, I think it's I, the first place my mind goes is like, obviously I'm like, 
loving the indie stuff, but it's like, is it more like, uh, um, if if there was a way to screen films that didn't have a distribution deal on a streaming platform or some shit, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And I think that uh, happens sometimes in you know ways I'm not always aware of, but it's like. Yeah, it would be nice if there was a way to support these things, you know, like there's all this talk of Tom Cruise saving movie theaters with Top Gun, which like is kind of true and great in certain mm-hmm. ways. But it's like, could we also take all of that? So like the midsize adult drama <laughs> is like possible to get made and seen again. I don't know. Well, I think you have to be an auteur like Bombac has been making those right. Like yeah. Marriage Story. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Marriage is a good movie at 18 million dollars. It's like, how yeah. do you? Normally that's like 40 million, you know, uh-huh. like it feels like it's now the, the yeah, the $40 million. And then those live on, I mean, that would broke through, but then even more so, but then those live on Netflix. Like, yeah, it's crazy. I don't know. It's, it's really weird to me because, and this is something I, I I'm going to shoehorn it back to the burning, but I actually really liked about it. I'm on this quest for, viscerality for things that are visceral again Mm -hmm. you know like not doing as much digital art like doing physical art um things that like you the experience of it is is part of it and it's like it's really hard because especially when you're on a budget where it's like it is cool in a way that like you know you you don't have to buy marriage story on your itunes or whatever or a dvd or uh or a screen or like a or film a film reel even but like you can just have a subscription and have access to this stuff but it's like it kind of feels like it occupies a different space that's like you know i still remember vividly when the two of us saw marriage story in the theaters and, yeah and i i remember i told you i was Corey was pregnant in the parking lot we talked for like 15 minutes obviously that was <laughs> helps to remember it but um <laughs> no so i don't know it absolutely. feels like a losing battle but whatever yeah we'll see um but this movie's very visceral. Oh man, it's from the beginning. Though that opening scene is so striking of kind of like I feel like there's some like kind of handheld point of view shots of him walking down the street towards these women dancing and it's like it right away the little differences from the story like we already talked about how they're not there's no age gap and they're like kind of just know each other and went to school together, but this one she's like you don't remember me. Or, or you must remember me, but I've had plastic surgery, which is such like a strange <laughs> Weird, thing. Yeah. And the way he plays it, I mean, again, this guy's face is incredible. Like the way he plays awkwardness and like insecurity, but also just the way his face hangs. You're like, you don't know what he's thinking. And mm-hmm. I felt from the beginning where it's like, it's until a little later, you're almost like, does he remember her at all? Is Or is he just going along with this because she's pretty, you know? Uh, because he almost doesn't even yeah. respond for until later, where he's like classic, "Hey me," and even then you're like, "Or is he just making that up?" And and then that eventually is... he asks his mom about her, and you're like, "Okay, they live by each other." Well, that's the thing. What I think is funny is that they're both participating in this because it's like you don't know if Amy, Amy, or Amy is um a um reliable narrator, right? She might not, not even be, like... be her. She had yeah, plastic surgery like... to an unrecognizable degree. Well, that's the thing. It's like she's saying all these things and it's a little bit weird. And then there's like the off putting like it's just funny because tell me what you thought of this. And then it relates back to my greater point. But it's like there's so many movies that like the the lead up to the kiss. Mm-hmm. The person is saying something that is not romantic at all. And it's being right. framed in this romantic way. It's like 
you know, you said I was ugly or like, you know, my God, like that type of stuff. Like, and then they kiss, you're like, what the fuck? And like this movie, I think is self-aware enough that it knows that it's weird and it's about this character. It's like, is she lying? Her sister, they, we then get these expository scenes at the very end of the movie where he meets her. He goes to their restaurant and then he talks to his mom who are these characters who you've never really, the mom's in reference, but the parents or her parents really haven't. And Hey, me's family is like, she makes up stories. She did not fall down a fucking well. And if yeah. we did, why wouldn't we know about it? And then the mom's like, Oh, there was like a dried up. Well, yeah, I don't know exactly. And like, um, that's kind of that, the narrative space where her character exists in a cool way. But then I don't know at the same time, it's kind of like, is it commenting on that cliche? I don't know. It's just funny when it, when you're all of a sudden characters are kissing and the thing you said beforehand was very strange. I think it's definitely, yeah. Cause it's so uncomfortable that scene. And you're then, you know, later when she shows up with, uh, with Ben, you're kind of like, Oh, is she just out to like ruin this guy's life as vengeance? Cause that's another kind of movie too. Like the kind of mm-hmm. ugly duckling thing. Like now I'm hot and I'm going to get revenge on you. Cause you bullied me thing, but it's like not even that either. Um, Oh, it's yeah. so weird. Oh God. The I wanna I gotta go to Seoul. It just all the hills <laughs> looks so cool. Um it does look cool. Oh, I want to add an anecdote real quick. Um, because it really reminded me of this. But um, so remember the scene where they're kind of I guess he lives really close to North Korea and you can hear uh-huh. the propaganda through the radio. Such a cool detail. Yeah, when I um when I was riding a bike with Corey through Chiang Mai in Thailand everybody and Chiang Mai was the one place I went with Corey in Thailand where I didn't feel like it was a tourist trap. Uh Like I feel like I was seeing real Thai people living their real Thai lives. And I, it was my favorite part of the trip by far, but there was, everybody was sitting out on the porch listening to a radio of like propaganda kind of. Yeah. I was told, I I didn't obviously understand it, but I, I heard like a buddy of mine lived in Thailand for two years and he gave me like a list of kind of do's and don'ts before I went. And one of them was like, never insult the King. You know, and it's like there is like it's just it's 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 it was fascinating in a weird way. It almost makes you feel like, should I go there where there's people who are like don't even realize they're oppressed? But yeah. is that then weird racism? Ethnic, I know. Ethnic, trust it's like know shit we don't even know here. about. And even in the, yeah. even within this movie, it's like when Ben comes out, when they go out to uh, to the farm, he's like, what is this? And he's like, it's it's the North Korean propaganda and kind of like us. He's like. I literally, I think I turned to Leanne and I said, this is so interesting. And then Ben goes, interesting. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> damn. Uh, yeah. Just like the the level, the the separation. Oh, man. It is crazy so how different the Koreas are. Yeah, it really is. And well, because then it's also, I, I feel like there are ways in which I view, uh, because honestly, just because of cinema and they're kind of like a very western land culture or like boy bands i forget so much you know i forget that they have mandatory military service um it's funny i never usually do because i'm smarter than you no because every (laughs) now and again i'm not kidding south korea has like a major soccer player they have someone who's like very good and they have to leave to do military service right and i I just (laughs) i just found that i just was reminded of this because it's similar thing with i guess there's been all this news about bts who's like had their military service like 
uh, delayed several times and now people are just pissed. But they're also <laughs> like, if they serve their mandatory, I don't know if it's two or four years, mm -hmm. the country will lose like billions of dollars in revenue that BTS generates. Wow. And, and so it's kind of like they're weighing. Anything. Yeah. Um, Maybe they but, could tour while doing service. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. <laughs> Another thing, this is interesting, Lee Chung Dong, apparently there was like a blacklist of several prominent Korean filmmakers from like 2010 to 2017 that he was on. And like he said, they like kept the film industry alive still, but he didn't make a movie during that time. Uh, Damn. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. And even when they're like, you know, they're like smoking weed, very illegal. And not that it's not illegal in a lot of states here still, but you're kind of like, oh, I don't know why I thought it would be legal there. Um, yeah, um, which makes it you can totally then go burn down a barn. Oh my god, so <laughs> funny. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, he was just uh he was essentially blacklisted from 2010 to 2017 before a, a new regime came in. I mean, his background I, I I don't know much about it or about, you know, South Korean politics in general, but I guess he was born in the most conservative and rightist city in Korea, uh Daegu, I think, to a lower middle class middle class parents who were left leaning. Um but he's descended from the noble class of old Korea. And that like contradiction of being in a poor ex noble family. I'm like, oh, this is all right in the movie with like the differences in these these people's, you know, their classes. Oh, totally. um, I uh, know something and I'm going to get it wrong and get canceled here. So I apologize. But I had a uh, in my teacher preparation program. There was a teacher that taught us whose last name was Kim and he was Korean. Mm -hmm. And we had a different someone, a different person in our group who was Korean and their last name was Lee. And there's something about Kim's and Lee's like there were two oh, major families. Like that's why a lot of people's last names are Lee and Kim. Right. Because they're like, I'm pretty sure there was like two major families named like Lee and Kim and pretty much everyone. There's some relation to them um, in regions of South Korea. That's like very, very uh, it's like everywhere. Interesting. That makes mm -hmm. sense. I mean, yeah, well, let's all go read a book about Korean history. Um, and well, that'll be our next episode. Uh, I thought the difference is that it was really interesting that they were comparing the U.S. to Chinese, saying that they were like Americans and Chinese people. Are oh, yes, yes, yes. In that in the, uh, in the later bar scene, right? But then I is? also think that's funny. Yeah, in the later bar scene. But I also think it's funny Then they're like, but we're all, like, it's so funny to have a social commentary. But then it's almost backhanded where you're like. Americans and Chinese people think it's all about themselves. Meanwhile, we're Korean and we're fucking cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like where it's like it's kind of like the point about you can't bury the body where it's exactly. like you can't then be like, why don't they look at us? You yeah, know, if yeah. you're I don't know. God. I had this um, thought the other day too, real quick. I'm just throwing shit no, no, at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was like, I had this thought just overhearing people talk at the grocery store and I'm I don't know. I don't. I was just on a maybe a grumpy wavelength, but I'm like, God, if you're, and I'm such a hypocrite, but if you're always the protagonist or the victim in your story, you're a fucking narcissist. Yeah, aren't you ever like the person standing nearby? I always think that. I'm always like, don't you just assume you're wrong? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> all yeah, the time. <laughs> um, I will say that for myself. I genuinely wonder if I'm wrong. Um, yeah, you know, same. I assume the worst um, of myself. <laughs> um it's so funny it's so true i mean god uh oh this is what when they have sex for the first time in her very tiny apartment with a great view the, uh, you mentioned the how the well which is not at all in the short story is possibly inspired by uh murakami saying he would love to be at the bottom of a well 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know in what ways, but I thought this when I first saw it too. The scene of her explaining to him how the light bounces off of the tower for a certain amount of time a day. And then while they're having sex in the next scene, he's just watching the light while mm-hmm. they're fucking and then sees it go. I'm like, that is the most Haruki Murakami thing in this movie. And it's not from him, you know, <laughs> like that observation feels like something one of his protagonists would like interrupt a scene about sex to like, no, um, well- that's what's interesting, though, because I want to put something back to you then, Tanner. Mm-hmm. So in our very first episode, and this is likely our last episode for season one, is oh, you said that you feel like the best adaptations are fully in the voice of the filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, do you think it's just because we're in the know because we're these weird niche nerds? I get tickled by that type of shit all the time. You yeah. Know, no, no, no. Like, no this totally, is totally. what, but like, I don't know if it matters to the, the, the average movie goer. No, no, like, I don't know either. Yeah. Cause if I wouldn't have known it, you'd have been like, that's probably from the story. If I've read mm-hmm. other Murakami, um, I mean, God, it's such a great detail. Everything with that apartment is so great. Well, uh, that thing really honestly made me sad because I, I have in one friend in particular, not Emily. Um, I've had these like, and it's, uh, I'm trying to articulate this in a way that's like, not condescending it's like i'm very it's very i'm very sympathetic to it but there's like there's this and it's men it's men do this too but i've 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 had female friends who have these studios that are depressing and they're like so proud of them and they're mm-hmm. like because they're like i'm paying for this all myself and like etc cetera, etc cetera, and like have these they carve these little lives in these big cities and something about it is profoundly sad to me <laughs> like, no absolutely been, you know i mean i've been that person too but um when you observe it and it's not you for a reason it's more sad i, I agree it's very sad it can also be moved like you know i think at the end of francis saw when she gets her own place but mm-hmm. it's like but then i also wonder you know he mentions that his place is even smaller i think it's possible that soul is just prohibitively expensive like, oh yeah i'm sure you know um so maybe oh, it i is felt nice visiting too oh really yeah, we were in a high rise, which was. Uh, I wish we'd gotten. A, no offense, guys, if you're listening to this, I wish we had gotten a more residential area because it was like you were. But it was really small, and like I slept on a bunk bed, and it was like <laughs> you know. And then uh, my friend Teddy was like, "You should Zillow some stuff while you're here." And I, but apparently it's like crazy expensive, and also there is a lot of overseas. Um, I've heard a lot of a lot of Chinese investment in the city where they're buying up properties. That makes sense. Know, and you go there, it's so goofy because it reminded me of her, honestly. <laughs> Interesting. A little bit. Um, yeah, I can see that. Uh, which is Shanghai, um, but made to look like LA. But uh, it was really interesting because I was like, this feels like, I felt like it was like, this feels like the Pacific Northwest version of Montreal, which I've been to. <laughs> but also it feels like there's there's something Asian about it. Right, right. Well, because there's a huge Asian population, right? Because of the Pacific. I mean, you say Chinese oh, yeah. investors, right? Yeah. That makes sense. Anyway. It's very um, interesting. But I feel like that's... Well, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Because it's like we... <laughs> I don't know this is that compelling, but like... I remember I dated a girl in college who took a class at UVM called um, uh, Anthropology of Suburbs. Uh-huh. And basically, like urban sprawl is like terrible. Yeah, right? it's, and it's like this yeah. stuff. It's like the worst way you can set up society, and cities is actually the best way you can because of everything is the way it's set up. But then it's like that's such a generic term because it's like, do you really want to be living in a shoebox? Because that feels like you'd kill yourself. But at the same time, like L.A. is such an unnatural city. 
Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's like, I mean, I so think that's why it's, it's gotta be, I think the idea, you know, I don't know a ton about urbanism, but I think the idea is that like in like a proper urbanism, everyone would live in the city in a kind of communal way, but like they're, the places wouldn't be so small because there wouldn't be so many huge places either. And it would be uh, kind of, you know, interwoven mm-hmm. with nature in certain ways and transit. Um, I do in my vision of, of this, it's like just slightly smaller versions of his incredible apartment in this movie and everyone gets to live there. That'd be nice. <laughs> uh, well, I think it's so goofy because I can't tell is owning property of super American thing. Cause it's so. like, I get because I go to Europe and everyone loves to obviously there's property ownership there, too, but it's significantly less, it feels like. And most people like rent a flat, mm-hmm. rent an apartment yeah. and like that's in a city and that's like their life. But like here, it's like I have a family now, so I can't help but to always be like, I wish I owned a house. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's like, the it's reinforced to us like our whole lives and culture that you have to be like king of your own little castle. Um, king of the castle. King which, of the castle. <laughs> which also seems good. Um yeah, which seems well. You said publicly on this podcast you never want to own a house because you don't, don't. Want to take care. Of it. It's you true. Don't, you don't want to take care. Of it. But I admit back that you should buy a condo then. I should buy a condo that, because that's the one, one biggest. That's the one. Apparently, they've said the biggest indicator of intergenerational wealth is home ownership, and that's why our country we need to have reparations in the form of <laughs> marijuana. Uh, uh, in the form of marijuana. No, we talked about that first crypto, but uh, I really think down payments on houses that. Uh, where you, it would help with gentrification and it would make other people feel less guilty about buying those areas and would give, you know, people real buying power in a way that's like totally restorative. That's my pitch. I'm running for yay 24. <laughs> yay 24. Um, but back to burning. Okay. Back to burning. So we're like, I feel, I feel like there's a lot to talk about still. Yeah. Um, but I, Speaking of Kanye, the the Donald J. Trump news cameo is fucking hilarious. It is. Oh, my God. The shot of him where in the same frame you have half of Trump and then him peeing in the other side yeah. of the frame. And it felt it also doesn't, I guess, both because it's foreign and it's just on the news. It feels so much less shoehorned in than if like an American film had Trump playing in the background, you know, mm-hmm. um, and especially like him kind of paired with the uh, the North Korea, Korean pop propaganda. Uh yeah, I oh, that is oh I didn't even put that together. I thought that was great. Um God, a scene in the book, the whole I mean it's the centerpiece of the movie too, I guess. But the the scene in the book, uh, you know, when they smoke weed, the way he interrupts him and the way it's written to just say that he burns down uh yeah. barns <laughs> is so funny. Where where he just he's the protagonist just having like a reverie and then just boom, dialogue. Sometimes I burn down barns. Uh, actually, you know what? This I almost put this in here and text you. Some of this reading it and in the movie to me was like just a degree off from also a Tim Robinson sketch or just being like, just barns, burn down barns. What's so hard to get? I just burn barns. It's just it's not Tables. like a barn that people care about. It's not like it's like. The police came and they were like, don't worry about it <laughs> at all. It's like, there's no records of them. <laughs> totally. Barnes. Um, yeah. but well, the thing so is, though, they changed it to Greenhouse, which is, yes. I think, is a cultural thing. I guess there probably isn't as many barns in Korea. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I guessed, too. And then I looked it up and I read it in an, an interview with Lee Chung Dong where he, he says exactly that. Like, there, let me see. 
Where is it? I have to um, say there's something about the alliteration of barn burning that greenhouse just doesn't. Do. It's true, which is probably why they call it burning, but then there are other things burned too. Um, yeah. Oh, I thought that was a really good title, even though it's a little ham-fisted because it's like the burning desire to want to know what the fuck happened. Totally. You know? or, exactly. But, he like, burns him at the end. Zodiac. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is what he says. Uh, the barn in the original story has been changed to a greenhouse. That was because greenhouses are much more commonly found in barns in Korea. Whereas in the original story, the central mystery hinges on whether the barns had been burned down or not. The film's mystery is further expanded to many other mysteries. Very funny interview answer. Um, but yeah, that scene in the book, I think we talked about in the in the short story, it's so chilling as he's telling just like, yeah, a lot of people don't don't notice things that are just like so close to them. Yeah, um, I guess that's a little bit later, but um, that ah, God, the whole sequence in the in the movie, the long long scene. I noticed there are a few, I mean, several long takes, but the scene where they have sex is played out in just a couple shots, very long. There's that kind of cool, like almost canted angle with the handheld. That's like such a before it cuts to him seeing the light. Uh, just longer than you're used to for that scene than when she dances at the at his farm and it just gets darker and darker it's such a beautiful shot of twilight mm-hmm. and then the long pan after she leaves the frame so cool um and then i noticed you... i go ahead go ahead no you go i was just gonna say i felt like there are three of those maybe more but like each part and then the scene when he when he kills ben at the end uh is like almost entirely one take until he sets him on fire, then gets back in the car fully naked. And it just plays out so much longer than you're used to for a scene like that. And those were kind of like, to me, like the three, you know, kind of mm-hmm. poles of the movie. Um, well, that's interesting. Cause I'm sorry. I'm obsessed with long takes now ever since inherent vice, the, the scene we mm-hmm. talked about. Um, and I noticed the, all the same ones and I, I fucking love them. They really work in this. The one that almost doesn't work though, is I think the killing scene mm-hmm. Because you don't see the car light up. Oh, interesting. That, that's a, that's, that's a good point. Thing. That's why they cut it because they're obvious. Stephen Yoon is in the car. Right. They're not right, going right. to set it on fire, which makes sense. But I had this. I just shot a short film, and um, God, as soon as it, um, the push and pull of, of production, because as soon as I'm doing it, I'm like, this sucks, you know? Like, because I'm like, I'm so used to writing where you're like, oh my Anything god, this happen. Is... Yeah, and then you're actually having to produce it, you know. And I'm like, just trying to get a shot. Uh, I'm just trying to get a shot of uh, basically an insert shot of this girl riding a bike. And I just want to see her, her. I want to see her converse on the pedals. That's all I want. And then I'm like, I don't have a fucking dolly. I don't have a car. I'm just scurrying past her with my handheld camera. And then I'm in post. I'm hearing my footsteps, you know, <laughs> so fucking hard. Uh, but right, then the- at the end, when. I'm almost done this rough cut. I'm going to send you to get some feedback. And I'm like, God, it, there's nothing better than having a piece of something visual. Yeah. You know what yeah I mean? Right. Right. Now it's the most rewarding yeah. thing. Now I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> like, why did I ever write anything? <laughs> um, but what was I? Oh yeah. So I think weirdly that one stuck out to me because they had so many mm. long takes and you can't, you know, unless they were willing to set them on fire. I almost feel like to me, the cut was so abrupt. I noticed mm. the the cut when I um, had it in the that previous long takes um totally totally get that uh i also just we're talking about composition all the framings the kind of tableaus of the three of them in that scene when they smoke weed are all Mm -hmm. like feel like i've only seen the movie twice feel like they're burned burned into my brain like they just Mm -hmm. oh it's so cool and so just even seeing the differences in expression between the three of them 
because he's so different from Ben and could never be like him. But God, once she's asleep in the movie too, it's, it's Steven Yoon telling him the whole thing. Just like, it's mm-hmm. so scary and strange. Ugh. It is. You're totally like, it's really off-putting. I don't know. To me, it's like, it's like <laughs> the one thing about that scene though, as be- I don't know. It's kind of like, I guess it works. It does, The thing is the composition, I agree. It's like beautiful. It's the best part of the movie, I think, in the film composition way and it's really conveys like they say like that was the best day ever you know uh-huh, too. Uh-huh. even though the they don't re- i think hey me says that and again she was doing the little hunger to the big hunger dance so it's mirroring that but it was like full-on crazy though right to like, she takes her top like, off take her top off yeah. to do the dance and to end crying i know like i wrote down here that <laughs> that i i've smoked a lot of weed with a lot of different people and 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 every part of the country i feel like and no one has ever done that done yeah close. i feel like that that was a little i mean i guess you know you see her cry earlier at kind of a random thing and she's yeah. definitely presented as like erratic uh-huh. but also and he even says later like he calls her a whore for doing it but that was yeah. the part where like god this seems so beautiful and thank god because this is like kind of pushing the boundaries of what almost seems too like intentionally artful like with and now uh-huh. she takes her top off and it's really beautiful I, like, yeah. what? um but i god, think if she great. didn't take her top off it would work 100 percent. yeah totally would you know what i mean because now yeah. it's like oh and now we're seeing her like beautifully artfully like like star dappled nipples yeah 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 but it's so beautiful i mean i get why you would want to do it oh yeah it's an incredible image um (laughs) burn down greenhouses uh i just uh, (laughs) records of them and then she disappears i didn't remember it being i mean it's a little more explicit than i remembered in that she calls him and doesn't say anything but you hear her like struggling or running away Mm -hmm. from something that i was like okay yeah i get why he thinks something happened to her um but he's so it's like it's great because yeah you get why he's concerned and then also Mm -hmm. objectively he's behaving so crazily like banging on her door trying to get let in that was also a really funny moment where like the landlord's like i can't do that i could get in so much trouble and like hard cut to them opening the door yeah (laughs) yeah totally oh one thing i thought was really good too um in the beginning when they first meet ben and his car oh that's another thing you know the alarm goes off that he overhears him telling his friend that they followed them there with the car oh that's good where he was like i uh i guess that might have been who he was on the phone with but he was like he was like, uh, I, um, you know, the what was hardest, it was calling you guys without making it seem like I was or something like that. I but, didn't catch that. Yeah, when he's paying for the check. Yeah. Um. Yeah, he says that to his friend. No, no, yeah, I remember him saying that, but I, didn't, I just didn't even put it together. Um, yeah, it's like very weird that he would do that. But then when they cut to the outside of the restaurant and he has his fucking like rural farm car there. And it just, he's like, I got to go a long way back. It just shows like even further, like the obvious surface level of they live in different worlds, but then to be like, like the, the, the shame, 
Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and and there's like, every you know. scene. There's a scene when they go to the bar, which I was also uh, many things where I was like, how does this work? Where they're in the bar, but then also there's someone's dog there. And you're like, is this a bar or a house? Um, oh, yeah, but yeah. when they're walking outside to smoke before they go in and the way he's just kind of like ambling behind them and his clothes are just like out of a totally different world than all of them. Uh, mm. God, but it's that's a great foreshadowing because he's the he's so bad at following him because first of all you're like your truck game over he yeah exactly you. exactly take out a, take out a credit card and go rent a car but it's so funny because i mean it's great that you you mentioned that they foreshadow that because it does end up coming to see me and you're kind of like oh he knew the whole time he was following him and didn't mm-hmm. address it to a certain point uh because they even like so disturb you like disturb wow wow truly the shia um who directed disturbia uh his name is fuck don't look it up uh it's dj something he also did eagle eye with shia LaBeouf, which i haven't seen oh eagle eye sucks good okay good yeah what is his name it's dj something and now i'm gonna confirm it 2007 film Fingers crossed. That was like one of my, that might've been my favorite movie in high school. I know so many people who say that. I took DJ Caruso. Fuck yeah. Oh yeah. Wait, was he, he's not the, the, when uh 40 year old virgin, when Seth Rogen goes, you need to be David Caruso. <laughs> no, no, that's the actor from NYPD blue. <laughs> oh, you're right. You're right. That's funny. I have a teacher. We were all talking once after school about our celebrity crushes, crushes. And she was, <laughs> versus David Caruso. That is for cops really funny um shout out no i won't say her name um but uh, <laughs> sorry i cut you off to tell to talk about <laughs> to, no, no, no. to talk about let's mitigate the slap talk about <laughs> and then weigh in on don't worry darling all, all the hot that? topics uh, have i seen that yeah yeah i have uh, is it good? no hell no oh bummer. It, it is and it to have yeah, all that controversy for something that isn't even good it made money, I guess, which is cool because it is a, like a something of original, the, not but you major know your drama. Florence Pugh is very good in it, um, and so is Chris Pine. Mostly, uh, looks nice. It's bad, uh, very, oh, very, bummer. very bad. Um, but uh, the yeah, it doesn't pull off the slight scary what's happening aspect at all. Something this movie does very well. Um, but like, there's even I'd forgotten that. And was surprised by, I've said that so many times, I feel like, that they cut to, well, the first time they break and go to Steven Yoon's point of view when he's on the treadmill. And oh, you're like, yeah. you're with him for a second. And you're like, it's not entirely clear, but it's, I would say visually implied that he sees he sees him watching him from the street. Um, yeah. And he's getting, he's like getting off on. Yeah. Yeah. Those sequences yeah. are so good. A, a cut that startled me and I instantly remembered it seeing it in theaters too. When he follows him into the museum, I guess. Another confusing thing. A museum where Steven Yeun is also having a dinner. Didn't get that. Um, oh. But there's the there's the shot close on um, the protagonist's face and then it cuts, but it jumps the line and cuts to a wider shot of Steven Yeun eating dinner and the protagonist is in frame facing us from the same direction. Yeah. Uh, so disorienting, but so cool. Um, love a great area. It, it reminded me of some of those in Punch Drunk Love where it cuts on the same angle to him. Uh, oh, I loved on that level. I don't know if they did the original cutback like you're talking about, but uh, it's one of those suspend your disbelief things, but you, I love it, was the really wide uh, shot of Steven Yoon looking Walking up the, to the truck. Oh, the truck. 
Yes, that's, that's so like pure great. cinema to me in a way. You're Absolutely, like, you're like, what are you doing? Get out! <laughs> oh, it's so thrilling, and that's the point where you're like, yeah, does he know then? Like when he's like, it's just his truck and the Porsche on these tiny roads, and you kind of think he do, even when he pulls the, I think it's after that pulls the, where are you? You're in my neighborhood. That's crazy. Then just knocks on his window, <laughs> and he plays it nice the whole time, like he's oh, not wait, no, fucking he, with him. No, uh, well. No, he's not. I thought he says he's in Gognum. Oh, I just assumed that was his neighborhood. That's dumb. I see. No, so he's caught dumb. totally lying. I thought he was like, well, yeah, I am in your caught, neighborhood, but yeah. uh, he's caught. Yeah. He's caught like he gets pretty undressed. And that Ben doesn't even that's the creepiest thing about him that he doesn't even address it. He's like, I'm letting you lie. And I know what you're doing. Yeah, no, totally. And it's like he's like, well, you might as well here. Let's go have a talk. And then he wants him around and at the party and it's like he sees him yawning again the creepiest yawn the yawn like none of this matters to me and then nodding to him like raising his eyebrows oh my god yeah it's like so i love this is crazy to say, but i love when there's like stuff like that you can have that's what i love in this when you when you get a thing that's relevant in a foreign film where it's like you're not having to be you're not moored with the same social conventions mm. where it's like in a way there's some interesting because he is american like korean american but you're like that would just be done by every fucking director in the u.s would be like a white spoiled rich guy that's like you already hate him because you know he came yes. from like old money you know yes yes it's literally the exact same thing but it's but it feels new, different yeah it feels different and it's putting a new context for you're like this guy's a psycho <laughs> yeah it's also like i feel like they do a very good job of both his decor his costuming and his apartment it's it is crazy how nice they are but it feels like so many american movies would take it a little bit too far where you'd be like i get it but this is actually you watch it and you're like by the way matt your your quarter zip right now is awesome and feels like something he might wear uh the whole time um but it's (laughs) just like i watch this movie and i'm like damn yeah i hate this guy i hate rich people in theory i want like this is like actually tasteful you know yeah it's not like crazy gauche i mean he has a porsche whatever um but he like it looks cool not cool i mean they are but i guess you know it's like a little ostentatious Um, it's kind of like a corvette i mean for me because corvettes are i have i feel like really crossed the line where they're like <laughs> they're so yeah, gone yeah but, yeah, uh, yeah um i love in the short story though it's so dumb i'm like i want to steal this though for stuff i write because sometimes i just don't feel like describing shit because i'm not doesn't come readily to mind where he's like he had a nice car i can't really describe it because i don't know anything about cars yeah but was- yeah so god he's a really funny writer in that way in a way where you're like i don't even know if you think this is funny or not but it's so it's, funny it's hilarious i mean and it's effective it's it goes back to the point where hemingway uh, or no, didn't uh, Leonard said it about like skip, like cut things that the readers will skip. Yes, yes, exactly. Hemingway, Leonard's boy. Um, that way, it's like you know, do we really need to hear about this fucking car? Like, yeah, yeah. why not? You know, it's, it's like so funny. You see the man and the woman in the hills like white elephants, even though they're there not you described. Oh. You see the nice car. You don't. It's not described. Just like uh, elephants, God. Once again, I can't remember the title. Uh, uh, the elephant vanishes. The, the elephant vanishes. Yeah, that is. Um, I'm just yeah. The other line that you I noted mentally that you noted uh, physically 
So you win. Um, is it the great line where he she's like, you have to forget that the tangerine's not there. Not that it's, you know, remember that it's or whatever the opposite the of that would be. But um, that's a really cool idea. Yeah, absolutely. It even reminds me of the fucking stupid thing to bring up, but the idea in Inception of the idea of how you can't tell someone to not think about a pink elephant, elephants again, because then they're just going to think about it. You know, why, like, however they explain that Inception is impossible, but extraction is possible. And it's, yeah, I love that idea. Just forget that there isn't a tangerine. Um, yeah. Well, wait, do you think, oh, God, now I feel like Inception is the Corvette of movies. Yeah, we all thought yeah. it was so cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, know, I mean, it's cool yeah, for me. Yeah. I think Inception is cool. I, I gotta think it's say cool. It's cool. Yeah, it's dumb in certain ways, but it's so be- so well done and awesome. Like, come on, and so and like, it's a metaphor for filmmaking. It, it, I mean, that really is what makes it cool. Um, but that the thing that is cool too, I feel like about Inception <laughs> maybe relates to real comedy. Tell me if it does. Uh, that scene where he's talking about how I'd never use something directly fully from your own life, like oh, maybe right. parts of it. And I feel like that's actually really important because I've heard before someone say, I had a, a sketch writing teacher say to me how it's like, never re- make a character that is solely based off of one person. We're like, this is this person and never make a character who is not based off anyone. Yeah. That's a great, great piece of advice. Yeah. Split the, split the difference. Combine yeah. them. Um, and I feel like, I don't know. Do you think, is there any of that idea in Mirakami's works that you've read? Where you Because I feel like a lot of the, everyone I've read feels like it's, the narrators always have first person point of views and kind yeah. of feel like it's an extension of him or like looking or back. Some different it. version of him, maybe, or a version yeah. of him that might have been, you know. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Got to read that running book. Yeah. Well, hey. Maybe Chris Kringle will bring it to you. Chris Kringle. Well, it, it's interesting. I know you're not a huge fan of the, uh, of the movie, but um, Drive My Car also, I can't remember what it is. Are, are you, wait, are you, say publicly, are you a big fan of Drive My Car? Oh, yeah, I love Drive My Car. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> that movie was so long. And you, it's very you long. feel how long it is. You feel yourself aging. You I feel mean, I, cellular respiration going that's on. That's a movie. Here. Yeah. I definitely can't imagine not watching that in a theater, you know? Um, I feel that way about most long movies where like, I'm like, I, I don't think I could watch it at home anymore. Like I need to be forced to sit there. Um, but, uh, they, uh, 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 there, there's a bit in drive my car. That's not in the short story, but I recognize it from something and it's pulled from one of the other short stories in that collection, which I think is another cool way of like adapting a short story like that, you know, like mm-hmm. you're like, it's not even part of this, but it's still him and works in this way. Um, it's interesting because I feel like in a way it'd be cool to have access to all. Of, it's almost like you should get the, it's not like you can do this because you'd be with, you'd be withheld by budget, but to be like, you almost get their, the person's life rights. Mm along I mean, with adapting something you know yeah that would be cool yeah i mean yeah uh i know the drive my car was out piece of, of them having the <laughs> it was a piece of shit uh <laughs> came out of having the the rights to the whole book and then he wanted to do yeah. that one so they were able to do that um oh, man speaking of which i gotta fucking hound that the lady is george saunders uh agent so is not repl- dare i send it to a syracuse that edu 
Say, hey, do it. it. Hey, your agent won't let me know how much this fucking costs. I saw he has a new book of uh, short stories out. I saw that too, actually. I didn't. I'm like, so I'm like kind of manic right now with all this shit I want to read. And it's like, I just keep, keep more titles, just keep appearing. Keep accumulating. I know. Yeah. Um, Um, Yeah. I have a, I have an idea for a young adult fantasy thing that I won't say the idea because it's not fully developed and i'm worried if i speak it to life i'll never make it you know <laughs> right, right right um but i was like it was the, it was the moment of like i'm gonna take while i'm editing this film and finishing this podcast and traveling back east for the and spending thousands of dollars to see the people i see every <laughs> few weeks no offense love you guys uh uh I'll, like, few weeks. I'll try to uh i'll try to fill my subconscious like i need i want to re i've been re-listening to harry potter i've been trying to reread all these great works of young adult fiction but meanwhile like real adult fiction is whispering to me in my other ear like oh read read, read this read that and i just feel like i'm low-key need to chill the fuck out i'm really yeah i'm a little behind as well and i because of that i i, I bought the new Cormac mccarthy book maybe i told you this and but I'm still finishing the fucking f- huge Godard book that I'm almost done with. Uh, so that the, the Cormac McCarthy book and the Tarantino book are waiting for me. But I was like, I told my girlfriend, I was like, you should read the Cormac McCarthy book since I'm not ready to read it yet. And I bought it um, and she wanted to read it. But we were we just traveled and she was reading it the whole time, just like having a great time and like underlining stuff. And I would like peek over at this point. I was reading a book for work, a terrible book. And then I would just see her reading like I'd look at like one sentence and just be like, man, that's a good, good short it's a sentence. Good sentence. <laughs> and then she'd underline something and she'd be like, this is so good. And I was like, damn it. Oh, God. I read the Cormac McCarthy book. Yeah, I know that feeling. That's how I feel about Wonder Boys right now. I uh Oh yeah, that like we've I talked mean, about it. Such yeah. a you just, just want to read that all the time. I know. I just did I read like the first I think two chapters just because on a whim because I couldn't get Florence back out of the house when we went to the furnish to try to set stuff up at the new apartment. And like it was just like uh but then at the same time it's good because I feel like I don't know. I have these crazy debates in my head about what is what is like I don't know. It's 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 a weird attempt to put myself in a in a box. I think where I'm like, this is what I'm gonna do, and this is this will lead yes. to X, Y, or Z. But I'm like, you know, like I don't know. I gotta say, like Harry Potter is it the best work of literature? No. Is it a work of popular fiction? Arguably, is J.K. <laughs> Rowling kind of a hack because she steals from a lot of places, and if you actually know it, then you see it a little. But damn, it was I, she is amazing imagery. Everything you read in those books comes alive in your head, which is the hardest fucking thing to do, maybe. And they're so fun. I'm like, was there a more magical period of my life when I was reading Harry Potter? No, Probably the young not. adult fantasy novel is is in con- in contest in my brain for the highest art form out there. Prove me wrong. Wow. Mike drop. I have no I have no rebuttal. I mean, they're, you know. Did she name the one Asian character Cho Chang? Maybe. Um, <laughs> but did she put them in Ravenclaw, the stereotypical smart house? Yes. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Do two wrongs make a right? 
one hundred percent no. Um, uh, well, like I mean, I don't know. No, I dude, I wanted to live in those worlds so badly. Like, and I wasn't even that young. Like, I must have been rereading Half Blood Prince at like nineteen, and just being like, "This is all I want in my life is to be these sixteen-year-old magic characters with like love drama in a cozy boarding castle." Mm, um, totally, I I agree. Oh, I have a good. Would you rather? Would you rather? uh be in the wizarding world of harry potter but be a mm-hmm. squib or be in the pokemon world but you could only catch magic carp <laughs> this is the most you that you i didn't this, make it up that you had I this ready oh, okay you didn't make this up no no i wish i did i think i i think i spiritually did. i mean both seem less than ideal <laughs> okay. that's funny because that is the other thing that like Maybe throw in Dragon Ball Z and Buffy the Vampire uh, Slayer that for like a year or to two of my life that when they were important to me, all I could think about was wishing that that was my life. Uh, totally. I tried to used to when my parents were together and they had a, a house with a pool. I would try. <laughs> I would literally be underwater trying to go Super Saiyan. So no oh, for sure. No one could hear my screams. We had this friend. Uh, I had a best friend across the street and he and I were really into Dragon Ball Z. And then we had like a third friend who was like had anger problems and lived a little further <laughs> a little further down the street who also liked it and he he claimed he claimed that he had the ability to uh uh raise and lower his adrenaline at will which was like, like dwight with his blood pressure yes exactly this was a very dwight guy at like age 10 but th- that if th- this was his version of like raising his key and like his energy levels and so he would like get mad but it was like he would do the thing like we all like grunted like dragon ball z characters Mm -hmm. but he would like turn fully red and would also seem genuinely angry and it like really freaked me out as a kid (laughs) love it okay well tanner i feel like maybe we should put a bow on this but also like i love i loved doing the season with you it was great. Yeah, me too, Matt. This was a, a great capping, uh, you know, little capstone. It was cool that it was an adaptation of an adaptation kind of fitting. I don't often see that. And that felt to me in my little experience of Mirakami, very Mirakami. And I instantly had to go to battle with the person who told me about her. Yeah, and you won. And you won. And I won. Out of sheer force of will. <laughs> in a Wikipedia <laughs> screenshot, I KO'd Emily. Um. <laughs> believe Joss name but anyhow fuck uh, i'm trying to think is there anything a stone unturned let me see if there's any of these quotes just real quick um i thought this was interesting uh this is kind of how i feel about myself i feel like i write a good dialogue because i have a good memory um and it's just helpful but uh he said mirakami's interview said um I have collected so many memories in my chest, the chest of my mind. I think everybody has a lot of memories of his or her own, but it's a special gift to find the right drawer. I can do that. If I need something, I could point to the right drawer. Um, I like that a lot. And I feel like it relates to pop culture in a way. And it kind of reminded me of Tarantino who also, I kind of just stole what he just said. He feels like he can write good dialogue. Absolutely. That's good. That's Um, very cool. Um, Yeah. That uh, one last thing on my end, didn't mention this. Very interesting that he'd adapt, you know, such a huge literary figure's work because uh, Lee Chong Dong, I guess, is also a, a fiction writer. 
And he, you know, he didn't start making films till the 2000s. He was an AD before that in the 90s and wrote a movie, but didn't direct one. But in 87, he had his first short story published called Possession. And then another one called There's a Lot of Shit in Nokchion, which won the <laughs> Korea Times Literary Prize. Um, Hell yeah. So he's also a, a writer. Uh, very interesting. Good to know. It's interesting because he has such a this, this movie has such a distinct visual style. Absolutely. Oh, God. Really cool. Okay. Well, let's. So that's the end of this episode. But uh, I, I, I feel like we should say definitively now. Um, but what are season one highlights? What are the oh. What are the highlights of season one? <laughs> I feel Great like Michael say, or yeah, Dwight. Yeah, you put me on the spot. In the car, they're like top Dunder Mifflin moments. <laughs> When you held me and told me that you cared for me. Okay. Um, I know. What's my favorite episode? I have no idea. Um, I think our best episode is probably Inherent Vice. I agree. We went, we, yeah, that we was a lot. Long. And, it and we could have gone longer. Lot. We, we stuck really to did. the script. We didn't deviate about our personal lives as much. And we still had so much to talk about. And that, that was really... the one I feel like we had the same amount of affinity for. I think that Excellent. was like. I think you're a hundred out of a hundred on an inherent vice, and I'm like a ninety-eight. We're very <laughs> yeah, yeah. Close. That was so simpatico on that one. Uh, yeah, that was really great. Um, I don't know. They've all been fun. Uh, no Country for Old Men was a blast. I mean, Jackie Brown. I feel like I talked too much. Um, what? No. That was fun too because we kind of disagreed sl- slightly on some of that. Um, man, mm. it's been fun. So I think yeah, for me. The highlights are the audio quality on No Country for Old Men. That's borderline and unpleasable. Um, oh, one quick note of penance. It's, it, I, do you think this is different at all? So I got in my head about, we said definitively that Roe Dahl said in his own words, I am an, anti, an anti-Semite. And I, he really said, because I re-looked at the quote, he said, uh, I've in recent years, I've been, I've become quite anti-Israel and and anti and anti-semitic i think that's That's the same thing i think that's passable yeah if it was journalism you'd put in a little ellipse uh i also Uh feel better i was listening to blank check is doing uh henry the films of henry selick and today they Mm -hmm. did um or i listened to it today they did james and the giant peach Mm -hmm. and they went pretty heavy on Roald Dahl and how much they love him with like several jokes about him being anti-semitic they're also both uh jewish but um i was like oh we went way deeper on qualifying it (laughs) It made me feel pretty good. Oh yeah, okay. Um, it just—you never know how much is in the ether, how much people know or people don't know, or how much. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It is hard to know. Yeah, it's true. I, oh my god, yeah. I had a really good experience in this regard. Uh, this past weekend, I had a crazy Uber driver arriving in New Orleans. Uh, who was awesome. Like he, he went back and forth from at first. I was like, I'm so excited. This guy's our driver. He knows everything about New Orleans. He had all these recommendations for us, told us we wouldn't have time to do any of them, but that we had to come back, seemed to know everywhere we were going. And then slowly like kept um, making wrong turns and saying that he was avoiding traffic. And our time <laughs> just went up and up and up. And Leanne and I were kind of like, uh, oh, I got God. several notifications from Lyft that were like, let us know if you're still alive. Um, but one of the things where I was, I was flipping back and forth where I was like, this guy seems great. I asked him about Tulane university, which is in new Orleans. And he goes like, you know, who used to talk there every year, the pudding pop man. 
you know who I'm talking about. And I was like, yeah, I was like, oh, Bill, I, like I know who he's talking about. Yeah. I was like, Bill Cosby. He's like, that's right. I wasn't sure if you would get it when I said the pudding pop man. And he goes, man, he was funny. Uh, and I was like, does he not know about any of the stuff that happens? <laughs> does he not care? Or is he like daring me to bring it up? It ended up, I ended up um, being like, he doesn't know. And I changed the subject. Um, but it made me. There's so no way he doesn't know. Yeah, you're right. That was I, the I'm biggest story of. I I saw a, a sign for some shit. And I was like, "Is it anything to do with Ishtar?" No, no, a great movie. Tar's great, and like the only movie that I've seen that's like about cancel culture in a certain way, and like successfully makes it about both sides in such a funny, interesting way. It's really, really mm-hmm. good. Um, that's all I'll say. Oh, I thought you had this your your original one on this, and I think we're breaking up actually. So I guess hmm. I thought you said the last duel you felt was like that. You're so right, but this is like this is a uh, uh, you you got me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but the uh, Tar is like I mean it's like a contemporary setting, and she's like an artist who is canceled, like literally. Um, uh, what she's what she canceled for? Uh, you actually Indian and saying something horrible you, you actually kind of don't know uh but it's implied like sexual harassment or grooming and then like punishing someone who rejects their advances is the implication but there are there are a few things mm-hmm. and then in addition to that there's a very funny long one take scene of her um like owning a, a woke student at juilliard um uh that goes like viral because it's edited and put on the internet later um yeah uh a few oh, things wow. Very it's great. contemporary. Yo, yeah, yeah. It's very funny. Tanner, we got to figure out. A, we'll, I'm, we'll obviously do season two at some point, but uh, who knows? Maybe we'll have to just Zoom. White Noise Christmas special. Without recording. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, we do have to do that. A one-off. Um, Perfect. Well, good to see you, my friend. You too, Matt. Uh, good luck putting Florence to sleep. You're the sleep, sleep master. You got this. Sleep master general. Peace. <laughs> Peace. <laughs>